so it's great to be with you uh, today, this evening, and really appreciate it. Um, like Dave said, I moved here in August, and we're here to plant a church, the Table Project, and our hope is to see that people, that we can invite people to find a seat at the table of God's grace. We want to see people come from all walks of life to experience the grace and mercy and love of Jesus Christ, and that's kind of what drives us. That's why uh, we came here and why... Um, Really, it, it helped focus that re- that whole concept. Really helped focus uh, my life and my journey. This morning, we're going to look at the. Oh, you know what? Um, so I've recently met Mike uh, Sayers as well, and Mike wanted me to remind you all uh, another announcement that uh, uh, Greek Easter comes a week after regular Easter. So he wanted me to, to pass on his wishes to you guys for that. Uh, this morning, we're looking at the Book of Job. And if you've read the book of Job before, you know that it kind of blows away our expectations and our categories for a a person in Scripture, for a book of Scripture. Job is the story of a, a very rich man. It tells us in the first couple chapters, he fears God, he turns from evil, he's so righteous and holy that when his kids go and party, he goes and makes sacrifices for them on their behalf, just in case they may have possibly sinned while they were having fun. There's this cosmic scene at the beginning of Job where Satan comes before God and challenges Job's blamelessness, his faithfulness. And he says, God, the only reason Job is so good is because you've given him so much. Look at all his possessions. Look at his land. Look at his children. He has a good life. That's why he worships you. And so God allows Satan to attack Job, to take away his children, to take away his possessions, and ultimately to take away his his health. Now, at this point, Job's wife looks at Job and says, just curse God and die. Just get it over with, man. But in all this, Scripture tells us that Job does not sin. Indeed, the first thing he does is worship. He, he, he tears his clothes, he covers him with, himself with ashes, and he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And at this point in the story, Job has three friends that come along to try to comfort him. In the midst of comfort them, comforting him, they go through all these ways that maybe Job has sinned or maybe how Job will sin, and so God is punishing him for this. They say, look, Job, God wouldn't afflict you if you didn't have sin in your life. Clearly, you need to confess what you've done. But Job denies this charge and instead continually asks God to answer. God, what are you doing? And at the heart of the book... He asks, can I trust you? Are you good? Are you wise? And so this morning we're looking at uh, Job 28. It's kind of a long chapter and we'll go back into it a few different times, but I'll read it in its entirety and then as we come back to it, we'll, we'll, uh, I'll read those sections as well. This is Job speaking. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth, and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air, far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. 
As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it, the lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. The sea says, it's not with me. It cannot be bought for gold and silver, cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of offer and precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where, then, does wisdom come, and where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder. Then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. This is the word of the Lord. Who do you think of when you think about wise people in your life, who comes to mind when you think, I, I got to talk to somebody today. I'm struggling. I'm going through something in my life. Who do you turn to? Who do you call? Who comes to mind? For me, and I would assume for most of you as well, they're, they're older than us, right? They're people who have, who have lived life, who have gone through some stuff, as we would say. For me, my dad is one of those people. Not too long ago, about a year and a half, I was going through uh, one of the hardest seasons of my life. It was really pushing me down. I was feeling very oppressed and um, really struggling uh, through in a portion of my life. And I suddenly thought, I need to call my dad. This isn't a typical thought for me, and this certainly wasn't then. As an engineer, my dad can overthink the simplest of house projects, and that usually tends to dissuade me from calling him. I don't know where this blue piece goes under the sink, Dad. Like, that's why I'm calling you. I don't know what it's from. But in this moment, I knew I needed to talk to someone who loved me, who would be on my side, who would say tough things if that's what was needed, but someone who also had faced tough situations in their own life. And for me, in that moment, I knew it was my dad. Wisdom often comes with age because you have to go through some stuff to have wisdom. 
It's a bit like patina, right? Patina is this surface appearance of something that's grown very beautiful because of its age and its use. It's worn, barn wood, reclaimed wood. These all have patina. But real patina takes time. It takes weathering the storms of the ocean or enduring decades of use and misuse to be left with the beauty and the strength that patina provides. Wisdom also takes time, going through hardships, enduring pain, and suffering to gain wisdom. The alternative is veneer. If you've ever shopped at Ikea, you know what veneer is. Veneer is a a thin piece of material that covers a very cheap piece of material. It it, It hides and improves the aesthetics of what lies underneath. But almost as soon as you forget to use a coaster, it kind of starts to buckle under uh, the, the water stain that is left there. If you've ever tried to move an Ikea bookshelf, you know they cannot stand that sort of pain and suffering in their own lives of, as bookshelves. Veneer breaks down at the mere thought of trials of any kind. But unfortunately, much of what is considered or revered as sources of wisdom today are veneers and not patinaed, well-worn wood or substances. They're cheap substitutes for the real thing. And our passage today tells us that there are three places that we look for wisdom often in our lives. We look for wisdom in our work. We look for wisdom in our wealth. And sometimes also we look for wisdom in our worship. We look for it in our work, our wealth, and our worship. Now, two of these are veneers. One is patina. Let's look at our work. Job mentions this and draws this out in verses 1 through 12. I'll read those for you again if you want to put those up there again. Job says, Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth, and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? I think through the first 11 verses until we get to Job's uh, central question, he's whetting our appetite for something more than what his friends are offering him, kind of an excuse, a reason why God would be punishing him in his sins and in his, rather not for his sins, but in his suffering and pain. He says, look at all the things that man can do. He can mine for silver and gold. He can form great things out of iron. He can end darkness 
and bring light. Man has the ability to harvest food from the earth and to harness the power of nature. Then he gets to his leading question in verse 12. Where is wisdom? In the middle of his pain and suffering, his friends offering him bad theology and empty empathy, Job wonders, where do I find wisdom? I find it interesting that he starts off by saying all the things that man is able to do. Perhaps some of these are how Job amassed such great wealth in the, in the first place for himself. He works off the notion of mining. Mining is, this is one of the only mentions of mining in all of ancient literature. And mining has not changed from the 10,000 years ago when it was written. Mining is work. Mining is blood, sweat, and tears. We, we've lost people in mining accidents in the last decade still. It has not changed. And Job is asking, is this where we find wisdom? Because working harder... All that I have done does not explain my pain and suffering. It hasn't removed tragedy from my life. There's a New York Times article that came out recently. It sat on my in, my, in an open uh, browser window for probably like three weeks until I read it just last week before I knew I was going to be preaching on this. And it essentially asked the same question. When did we begin to glorify work, especially by working such long hours, right? 18-hour days, double shifts, no weekends, no vacations, no sick times. I haven't, I haven't taken a sick day in six years. There's no reason for that. Take a sick day, man. Like cough or something, right? Just, just call in sick. Social media influencers glorify ambition. Not as just a means to an end, not to get someplace, but as a lifestyle in itself, right? Hashtag hustle. Hashtag thank God it's Monday. I didn't know these hashtags existed. One water cooler carved into its cucumbers. Don't stop when you're tired. Stop when you're done. You're never done. Like there's always something more on your checklist. It never ends. The CEO of Yahoo said, uh, Marissa Meyer said, working 130 hours a week is possible if you're strategic about when you sleep, when you shower, and how often you go to the bathroom. She's advoca- advocating this like demigod-like ability, which will eventually destroy your body and your soul. The article ends by saying, you have to respect the hustlers. I mean, if we're doomed to toil away until we die, we might as well pretend to like it. I think the one thing this article gets right about work is calling it toil. This word is used time and time again in Scripture to describe our work. The writer of Ecclesiastes addresses this in his second chapter, verses 18 through 23. He writes, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. 
Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils underneath, uh, beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. And what he's saying here that whether we're working or not, we're going to be frustrated in our lives by by our jobs, by our works, by our vocations, some of those things that we feel so called to deep in our lives, they will fill us with frustration. This past year, I have been unemployed in the eyes of the federal government, which I just came to find out means I don't get much of a tax return. Um, I've been worried about finding a job uh, in the last year and a half, uh, moving to Denver, moving in with my parents at 37. I know that's everyone's dream. Uh, it certainly was not mine. Uh, planting a church, all of these things have caused great, great um, frustration and, and anxiety. And I've been working hard to make sure that I can, I can plant this church, that we can move, that we can get started, that we can find community, that my kids don't have a horrible transition experience. And I've wondered if the work is ever going to begin. But now as I'm here, and the work of planting a church has started, I worry about how I'm leaving my wife and kids at home, about how I'm not helping out as much. Am I going to become an absent father? Do my kids hate me because I have to go work for several hours a day? A few hours a day right now, just a few, but... Especially since I've had so much time to spend with them over the last year. How do I escape this frustration? How do I escape this toil? Is a balance even possible in this life? Chef Magnus Nielsen of Favakin Restaurant in Sweden recently reset everyone's work week to about 40 to 45 hours. He said he wanted a healthier, more enjoyable work atmosphere. And he says chefs in particular, but I believe this applies to pastors and, and uh, anyone, honestly, anything that we do, um, this applies to it. Chefs overestimate our importance. This is why we hustle so much. I think the heart of this question is, are we placing our identity in our work? Is that what drives us? Is, is that what gives us meaning and purpose in this world? Does it feed our ego? Does it give us an inflated self-importance? Do we believe that we're the only ones that can do this job and we're the best at it, so why would I ever let someone else do it? When we introduce ourselves at a party and the person eventually asks, what do you do? We always respond with an identity statement. I am a pastor, a server, an artist, an IT guy. Actually, I, IT guys, I had this conversation with an IT guy this week. I was like, what do you do? He goes, I work in IT. He, it was not like an I am statement at all for him. But many of us know that placing our identity in our work is tenuous at best. Right? We've experienced being let go without notice. Budget cuts. Seasonal labor. 
independent contractor, relational differences, vision shift, right? We don't have a place for you here anymore. The shifting sand of work is no place to find wisdom. It is merely a veneer. So work does not lead to wisdom. But what about... What about wealth? Wealth is what we get when we work, right? At least maybe we can accrue some wisdom through what we have and what we possess. Well, Job addresses that as well. We'll start with uh, verse 12 again, and we'll read through verse uh, 19. Job writes, But where shall wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it's not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed out as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of offer, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal, The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. As I said, Job wonders, maybe wisdom can be bought. Land ownership, sea trading, going out on adventures. Maybe I can amass enough things that I can then go off and sell maybe a little portion of it and buy wisdom. Maybe Wisdom can't be found in our work, but maybe it can be found with our wealth. Maybe we can pick it up at Whole Foods next to the organic meat substitute. Amazon has everything, right? We'll just prime it, have it delivered in two days for free. But no, Job resigns. Wisdom cannot be purchased. It cannot be bought. Wisdom, it's not a commodity. And this is so hard for us in America We see wealth and money get people so far. We're no longer keeping up with the Joneses, with our neighbors, right? We're keeping up with the Kardashians or our friends on Facebook or the the friends, quote-unquote, that we follow on Instagram. I have this theory that our mind cannot handle seeing individuals on Facebook and all that they're doing. And so when we intake all the vacations and family fun and shows and concerts and whatever our friends are doing, our mind does not have the ability to separate that all out. All we, all we do is sit there and despair as we flip through our phone on our couch. There's this idea in our culture that wealth equals happiness, love, comfort, joy, sex, justice, and as we're exploring today, wisdom. There's this absolutely amazing documentary on Amazon called Generation Wealth, where photographer Lauren Greenfield, who's worked for Times and other notable publications, follows and explores the effects of wealth over about 25 years. It is both extremely sad to watch and incredibly eye-opening, kind of a behind-the-curtain look at the reality of extreme wealth. And in it, she tells the stories of former hedge fund managers, rock star children, porn stars, and child beauty queens. And all of them tell the same story of the emptiness, the vapidness, and the veneer of wealth. 
the former hedge fund managers living in exile in Germany because he's on the FBI's most wanted list. He's defrauded people out of hundreds of millions of dollars. And he said, if you think that money will buy you anything and everything, you've never, ever had money. I can't buy the smile on my daughter's or my son's face. I can't buy the love and bed of my wife. I can't. Lauren, the the director, the, the producer, said, I've been a photographer for 25 years with my lens focused on wealth, and I've noticed that no matter how much people had, they still wanted more. This fictitious lifestyle fuels this sense of inadequacy. Right? We see celebrities bribing college officials to get their kids into college. But much like work, wealth only brings fake comfort, fake ease, fake security, fake wisdom. It's fake news. It's an illusion. It's a veneer. In the words of the great theologian, the notorious B.I.G., mo money, mo problems. My wife said you guys wouldn't think that's funny. I thought it was pretty good. Where are we putting our own sense of comfort, our sense of ease? Do we look at our bank accounts? Do we trust in our retirement funds? Do we believe in the accrued wealth of home ownership even after 2008? Or on the flip side, do we, feel, do we not feel comfort and security because we see how little we have? Because we see how small our bank account is and how much debt keeps piling up on our credit cards. Do, you, do, you, do we see the futility of placing our comfort, our ability to, to, to escape pain and suffering in our financial situation? Not only is wealth not the place where you find wisdom, it's not wise to place your comfort and security there. So hopefully at this point we've seen kind of the veneers of work and wealth so, Job, where do we find wisdom? I mean, I appreciate, like, the walking us through all the kind of the negative arguments and showing us where there isn't wisdom, but I would like you to tell me, Job, where do we find it? Job says we find it in our worship. Last few verses of here, uh, of, of this chapter, uh, verses 20 through 28. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we've heard rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. God is the only one who knows the way to wisdom. It's interesting here, I think, that Job doesn't say wisdom is contained within God as if it's something hidden away in his own mind. Uh, 
Rather, he said, God knows the way to wisdom. He knows where to find it. It's like we have to walk with him in this journey of life, just as God sees everything. As he gave wind its strength, as he measured the waters, decreed the rain. And in in verse 27, Job says, God saw wisdom. Just as he established everything, all of creation, he saw wisdom. He declared wisdom. He established it and searched it out. I really like the way that Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. He wrote, God alone knows the way to wisdom. He knows the exact place to find it. He knows where everything is on earth. He sees everything under heaven. After he commanded the winds to blow and measured out the waters, arranged for the rain and set off explosions of thunder and lightning, he focused on wisdom and made sure it was all set and tested and ready. And then he addressed the human race. Here it is. Fear of the Lord, that's wisdom. And insight means shunning evil. Job finally gives us the answer we've been looking for all chapter long and probably all book long in verse 28. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. But fear, really? Is this the answer we really wanted? Is this the answer that we were hoping for? I don't think fear is what really comes to mind when I first think about wisdom. It's not what comes to my mind. But fear has so much more of expansive meaning than something scary or spooky, as my two-year-old daughter says. Job, in the beginning of the book, is called someone who fears God. Fear is awe. Fear is reverence. Fear is stillness. Fear is worship. Fear is turning our attention from evil, from wealth, from work, and focusing on God. Now, worship isn't merely singing songs on Sundays or listening to a preacher with too many illustrations. Worship is relationship. Worship is experiencing God. It's engaging with who God is and letting Him engage with you. You see, there are really two sides of worship. There's listening to God, and there's speaking to God. Listening, I'm, I, tonight I decided to call it silent awe. It's recognizing greatness that's before you. It's not really a foreign concept to us. We do it all the time with art and music. Right? That's why we're quiet at museums and concerts. The violin is an instrument uh, for me that absolutely stills my heart. I've always wanted to play it, but I've never, as of yet, uh, had the chance to learn it. My favorite musician in the world, and he doesn't come here very much. I'm kind of disappointed by this, is Andrew Bird. I love Andrew Bird. I lived in Chicago for many years, and I was able to see him in just about every type of venue and dive bars in um, in churches and outdoor um, amphitheaters, and I absolutely loved going to see him. I went When I moved to, to St. Louis and my wife and I got married, we went to see him at the pageant there. And as he comes out on stage, he, you know, he has an opener, and then he comes out. It's just him and his violin, and he begins to play. And he does this thing where he begins to loop layers and layers of music over one another. And this dude behind me is talking like he's at a crowded bar. And I am about to rip his face off because he's not still. He's not listening. He's not letting the music speak to him and speak to his heart certainly about who Andrew is, but also about who he is and what he needs to learn from this. 
The other part of worship is is speaking. It's vocal ardor. Ardor is passion. It's fervor. It's intensity. It's arguing with Job. With, excuse me, with God, like Job does in chapter twenty-three, when he calls God to pay attention to him. Surely he's going to come and sit before me and tell me what's going on. Now, I wasn't raised. Uh, I was raised in a Christian family and a church, but I was not raised to talk to God this way. But people do it all throughout Scripture. The psalmists, man, the psalms are filled with prayers that are not nice. They're not comfortable. I tell people sometimes I, I pray some of these psalms, and they're like, really? I'm like, yeah, it's Scripture. And so I pray them to God, and I, I assume he's going to do some good things with it. Probably not the things that I would like him to do with it, right? These psalms demand that God give an answer for what's taken place in the psalmist's life or in the life of Israel, and they're given to us so that we can pray them also and say, why have these things happened to me? God is not so small that he can't bear the weight of our complaints and our pain and suffering. And all of Job's complaints against God Scripture and God even professes at the end of the book that Job did not sin. And what both sides of worship, listening and speaking continually do is focus our eyes on the one who has established wisdom. Worship focuses our work and our wealth so that they're done in wisdom, not just idols that we pursue emptily. It places God as our source of security and comfort. And when we begin to worship the one true God, he begins to give us true wisdom. Unfortunately, though, like Job, it's often our pain and suffering that we focus on rather than focusing on God, especially when we're in the midst of it. And it takes pain and suffering often to focus our eyes back on God. It is in these times that we are being beckoned back into a relationship or into a deeper relationship, or into a relationship with him for the first time, perhaps. I don't think it's a mere platitude when Job says, fear God, as if we're turning from this kind of good idea about who God is to this, okay, now we have a rule and a law to be able to follow. No, I think this is the core of the Christian faith. Can God be trusted in our pain? Can God be trusted in the midst of our trials Can God be trusted in the middle of a miscarriage, in the middle of a move that we weren't planning on? Can God be trusted when our marriages are seemingly completely falling apart? Can God be trusted when we're wrongly fired from our job or when our wealth plummets, when the wounds of childhood begin to surface again as we raise our own children? Is this God worthy of worship? Is he worthy of our awe? Is he big enough to handle us? I believe he is. I believe he is because God, in his own infinite wisdom, did not remove himself from pain and suffering. The same word for wisdom in the Old Testament is used to describe Jesus in the New. The Gospel of John begins by calling Jesus the Word, or wisdom, See, wisdom is not merely contemplation, what we think. Wisdom is action. Wisdom is a person. Wisdom 
is Jesus. And Jesus did not put his trust in the veneers of work or wealth, but in the patina of the cross. As Jesus carries his cross to the, up the hill to Golgotha amidst the, cheers, the jeers and taunts to save himself, he is silent. He is focused on what God has sent him to do. And as Jesus hangs on the cross with his last breath, as the crowds have vanished and all is quiet, he calls out to God and cries to him with passion and fervor, asking him why he has forsaken him. It is in the scars on the body of Christ that we see the patina of wisdom take place, in which it's embodied, established, and tested. Let's pray. Father God, sometimes life is so overwhelming that to look outside of our circumstances um, seems overwhelming. That if we don't focus on them and what we feel like we need to do instead of trusting you and trusting your wisdom of looking to you, you don't answer Job why but you give perspective. And we trust that you are a good God through who has created everything, who has established the rules of this world, who has come uh, in the person of Jesus Christ to embody wisdom, not to be removed from the pain and suffering in this world, but to enter into it. Help us to see that we have a God who is with us, who is near to us, who weeps with us, who collects our tears in a bottle, who knows of the pain and suffering in our lives. Lord, turn our eyes from the things of this world to the things of you so that we may worship both listening and speaking, engaging in a relationship with you through the power of your Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in whose name we pray. Amen.